0: Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers. The Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. folks interesting topic this week how about civil war that's right now I found an interesting article by a fellow by the name of Ron Elving and of all things he writes for NPR and he says how about an American civil war but this time in every state and he comes up with some pretty interesting thoughts He starts out by saying not long ago, the idea of another American Civil War seemed outlandish. These days, the notion has not only gone mainstream, but it also seems to suddenly be everywhere. Business Insider magazine published a poll in October of 2020 saying a majority of Americans believed the U.S. was already in the midst of a cold Civil War. Then last fall, the University of Virginia Center for Politics, released a poll finding that a majority of people who had voted to re-elect former President Donald Trump in 2020 now wanted their state to secede from the union. Now, this University of Virginia data also showed a stunning 41% of those who voted for Joe Biden in 2020. Also said it might now be time to split the country. Now researchers have found such downbeat assessments of America's democracy are especially prominent among the young. Last month the Institute of Politics at Harvard's Kennedy School published a poll that found half of voting age Americans under 30 thought our democracy was in trouble or failing. A third also said they expected there to be a civil war within their lifetimes. And a quarter thought at least one state would secede. Now this is pretty fascinating stuff to me. The more one hears this particular drumbeat, the louder it gets. Late last year, the University of Maryland in the Washington Post produced a poll saying that one-third of Americans thought violence against the government was sometimes justified a belief they found even more widely held among Republicans and Independents. According to the Post, just about one American in ten held that view in the 1990s. So things have changed, folks. Do the respondents in all these polls fully realize what these terms mean or their answers imply? I think not. What do people even mean by Civil War? Think about this. The American Civil War cost the lives of at least 600,000 Americans and contributed to the deaths of many thousands more. It devastated the South economically and left most of those in the region who had been emancipated to go on to live lives of misery. Moreover, it did little to settle the constitutional issue of states' rights, a problematic point in our national conversation ever since. Now, Stephen Marsh, Canadian novelist and author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, goes on to state, the United States is coming to an end. The only question is how. Now, that pretty much tells the reader where he stands, and it's hardly coincidental that the aforementioned book was published on the first anniversary of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Now, Marsh theorizes... You now have another situation like in 1860 where you have two legal statuses of people in different parts of the country and it just can't hold. Two legal statuses, what's he talking about? Now he says this idea of two legal statuses existed in different regions of the country existing in different regions of the country is nothing new. Every American is subject to two legal statuses. On the one hand, There are those laws of the United States Congress that they have the authority to pass, limited to what Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution allows. And on the other, there are the laws passed by the states. So he's correct. We have two statuses. You're a citizen of the United States, but you're also a citizen of your state. Now, when the Supreme Court struck down the federal government's overreaching protection of abortion, that was simply federalism at work, not a revolutionary threat to federal power. In fact, as Liberty Nation legal affairs editor Scott Casenza points out, it's only when some states wish to exert their will over how things went in other states that we got to a civil war, devolving power from the federal government and giving it back to the states is an anti-Civil War measure. Now, if federalism were respected as the Founding Fathers originally outlined it, there would be almost no discontent with national policies because there would be very few national policies. There would be no far-reaching executive orders, or massive debt, or spiraling inflation, or an alphabet soup of federal agencies. Now, I did a little more research and came up with an article by David Goldman in the Associated Press, and he says we already are seeing a border war within individual states passing major legislation that differs considerably from that in other places. Daryl West, Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and William Gale, a Brookings Senior Fellow in Economic Studies, have written a pair of articles on the fraying of the American social and political fabric. They note that conflicts between entire states are not the only way civil war may emerge in our time, or even the most likely. When and if the issue turns to violent confrontations between local citizens and federal officers, or between between contentious groups of citizens, the clash might well take place far closer to home. As West and Gail write, Today's toxic atmosphere makes it difficult to negotiate on important issues, which makes people angry with the federal government and has helped create a winner-take-all approach to politics. When the stakes are so high, people are willing to consider extraordinary means to achieve their objectives. And what do these careful scholars mean by extraordinary means? They say America has an extraordinary number of guns and private militias. How many? They cite the National Shooting Sports Foundation's estimate of 434 million firearms in civilian possession in the U.S. right now. That would be 1.3 guns per person. Semi-automatic weapons comprise around 19.8 million in total, and they add ominously making for a highly armed population with potentially dangerous capabilities. Now, the geographical divides in our time are different from those of the 1860s, but the most meaningful geographic separation in our society is no longer as tidy as North and South or East and West. It is the familiar divide between urban and rural rural folks or to up that a a bit, metro versus non-metro. Thus, a blue state such as Maine has populous coastal counties that voted for Biden and sparsely populated interior counties that went heavily for Trump, enough to tip the majority to him in one of the state's two congressional districts. Conversely, in ruby-red Nebraska, one congressional district anchored in the city of Omaha went for Biden. I can tell you that here in Missouri, we have the same problem. St. Louis and Kansas City voted for Biden. Rural Missouri voted for Trump. So now I have to ask the question, would America survive a civil war? And for that, I turned to another article. This one was on a website called unheard.com and was written by Malcolm Keun. Historically speaking, he says, empires average last for around 250 years, after which they tend to either slowly or very quickly fall apart due to overreach and internal conflict. And I've heard this many times. 250 years is about the going distance. Now, somewhat ominously, the 250th birthday of America is coming up in 2026, folks. Now, 2022 is a different world than it was in 2015. Talk of insurrection, secession, civil conflict, and civil war is no longer the chatter of gullible and the mentally ill. It's entering the fringes of polite society. Now, some support this national divorce. Others are opposed to it. Others claim they would actually prefer to declare war on their wayward countrymen rather than let them go their own way unmolested. Now, the year 2022 has thus far been a spectacular year for signs of political decline. The U.S. has now seen all the notable horsemen of the apocalypse that historically herald strife and revolution appear. Now, what are those things? Political division among its elites. Increasing loss of legitimacy in the eyes of the population. Military defeat abroad. And a new and very ominous crisis in the economy. And there's no end in sight, folks. Any one of these crises, if you go back through history, was bad enough on their own. Taken together, they represent a truly serious threat to the stability of the current order. Still, the question to be answered at the end of the day is quite simple. How likely is civil war or national divorce? Or a troubles scenario, really? To answer this question accurately, a few misconceptions about it being impossible have to be dealt with. Now, one of the most worrisome aspects of contemporary American political discussion is a sense one often gets that many participants are possessed by a thinly veiled bloodlust. Following a wave of destructive riots that tore through many cities in the United States last year, this turn toward open celebration of equally useless violence when it is visited on the enemy team speaks to a dangerous sort of polarization. Now, from this sort of bloodlust flows another very common assertion that a civil war, if waged on American soil, would be over very quickly and lead to a fairly effortless massacre of any insurrectionists in flyover America. Now the idea here is that the US military is so advanced and has so many tanks, gunships, bombs and drones that the federal government is simply assured of victory. And as such a civil war is an unlikely or impossible scenario given the dramatic imbalance of power between the state and even a numerically large, dissatisfied internal population. But folks, this is a dangerous misconception. While the U.S. military is indeed powerful and lavishly funded, it is a military designed to fight in other countries. Now, folks, we have seen this throughout history. All you have to do is look at your history. Look at what happened to the Soviets when they tried to take Afghanistan. Look what happened to us. Look what happened uh, when you form groups like ISIS and Hezbollah and these groups act as terrorists. They're able to go up against tremendously powerful countries, and yet they continue to survive. Warfare between countries is bound by rules and regulations. There's the difference. It's based on both sides living by those rules. Now, this might seem a strange assertion to make, given that a country cannot just decline a war declaration from an enemy, but it holds true. There's a formal and informal understanding of who is an actual combatant and who's not. In contrast, warfare in primitive or tribal societies does not make any distinction between a civilian and a soldier. They're just enemies, ambushing and killing a 12-year-old girl, getting water out of a creek, is seen as normal as killing an adult warrior. This is where the European habit of calling uncivilized people savages comes from. Rather than merely being an expression of racist chauvinism, Europeans were in fact oftentimes shocked by the habit of their opponents and other peoples to not play by the rules. We were guilty of that, folks. When the British came here to fight us in the American Revolution, they expected us to line up on the field of battle. And we'd exchange volleys. That was the way it was done. But not us. What did we do? We'd hide behind a rock, wait till you passed, and then shoot you in the back. We didn't have a problem on with that. And that's why they called us uncivilized. Now, in counterinsurgency warfare, this all becomes a big part of what happens. Playing by the rules in a war is a fool's game. An insurgency in America has about as much reason as the Native Americans once did to follow the rules of their enemies. They're under no compulsion to wear strobe lights to make themselves easier for the drones to hit. And that simple fact means that a counterinsurgency effort in the U.S. is almost certainly doomed to fail. Look at the Civil War. Here in America, the first one. And look what the guerrillas throughout the Midwest were able to do. People like Quantrell and Bloody Bill Anderson. They only had commanded groups of maybe 200. And yet there were 80,000 troops stationed in Missouri to try and chase those kids down. So they are effective. Now, again, in counterinsurgency warfare, guerrilla warfare, everything that makes the U.S. armed forces great, high-tech weapon platforms and immense destructive power, are not just useless, but in some cases counterproductive. A tank parked outside a shopping mall in Idaho will either spend its time shooting at nothing, or be at very high risk of killing innocent American civilians for the high crime of just looking suspicious. Droning American weddings, like Afghan ones, does very little to advance the goals of a counterinsurgency. If anything, it only makes the relatives of the dead more likely to fight. In our Civil War, martial law was declared in Missouri, and the Union forces literally declared war on the citizens. Now, the U.S. Armed Forces are also, at least in order of magnitude, too small to do the job. What? Look how big they are. Nope, folks, I'm sorry, they aren't going to be, have enough people. During Operation Banner, the British military deployed almost 20,000 soldiers in t- Northern Ireland to keep a lid on that territory. Now, the U.S. Armed Forces consist of about 1.3 million active duty personnel. But this is spread out over five branches, Army, Marine, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Now, only a small minority of military personnel are actually combat troops. And think how many are stationed overseas. We can't just pull them out of, the, out of their stations there and bring them back. Now, it is thus very unlikely that the armed forces could scramble more than 100,000 regulars willing to do the job of holding an M4 carbine and patrolling down Main Street in any town, Texas. To put that in perspective, Northern Ireland is only about 2% the size of Texas, and it took 20,000 troops there. Then there's the fact that the most significant political split in America is between rural areas and coastal cities and the armed forces are reliant on the very areas it would be tasked with policing as far as recruiting soldiers. Red America is over within the armed forces, and this isn't going to change. As such, the U.S. doesn't have too few soldiers. It has potentially unreliable and the more brutality is used against unruly red states, the more these soldiers will be ordered to fight and kill their own friends and family. That is a recipe for serious mutiny and disobedience. And finally, there's an even greater elephant in the room, folks. In the case of an American drone pilot accidentally blowing up a wedding in Afghanistan, the Afghan relatives of the slain immediately had very little recourse but to join the cause to fight. And if an American drone pilot blows up an American wedding, that drone pilot and his or her family lives in the United States. Now, given the likely unreliability of some significant parts of the armed forces and the names and addresses of the most hated butchers, are unlikely to stay a secret for very long. Let's face it, Washington cannot keep secrets. Now, in Northern Ireland, for example... The provisional IRA not only attacked soldiers, they made it a habit of assassinating the officers and the commanders and the politicians, both for revenge and a display of might. From Lord Mountbatten to a near miss against Margaret Thatcher herself, to a score of less well-known targets, the IRA illustrates just how difficult it is to protect against an enemy that can simply choose not to wear a uniform before their enemies visit. Now, with all that said, how likely is it that there will be some sort of civil conflict in the near or mid-future in the United States? Unfortunately, the correct answer here may very well be that it's not terribly unlikely. I wish it was just unlikely. What is significant about America today is not that it's nearing its 250th birthday, but rather the clear and advanced signs of sickness in the body politic. The ranks of America's military are now brooding and battered after 20 years of failed nation-building, while its higher officer corps is increasingly alienated from the world of its grunts, mirroring that same cultural, economic, and social divide that is currently poisoning c- civilian life in the U.S. Folks, if a civil war were to break out, we in here, here in Missouri would be in the same mess we were during the last one. Kansas City, Columbia, and St. Louis would all side with the federal government and its forces. Martial law would be declared. Citizens would be forced to choose a side. Those opposed to federal control would challenge that occupation and fight a long and extremely bloody guerrilla war. Bear in mind, during the last civil war, The Union had to station, like I said, 80,000 troops in Missouri to fight guerrillas like Quantrell, the James Boys, and the Younger Brothers. These forces numbered only in the hundreds. Why? The federal government waged war, not only on the guerrillas, but on the citizens of Missouri as well. The reason being is they contended the guerrillas couldn't exist if it weren't for the fact that the population was supporting them. Now folks, I pray it never comes to Civil War. Because all you have to do is look at our history. More U.S. casualties were suffered in our Civil War than in any other conflict in our history. Including World War I and World War II. Why? Because no matter who became a casualty on either side, it was an American. The sad thing is, despite those losses we now find ourselves fighting today over the very same issue, federal versus state power. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Pazeman. See you next time.